Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Seth Schindler, is a senior lecturer in urban development and transformation at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. He studies large-scale infrastructure projects like the building of ports and roads and railways, and he predicts that geopolitical rivalry between China and the United States will be the key factor driving the development of these massive projects. In fact, as he explains, we are on the cusp of an infrastructure-building arms race between the United States and China. In our conversation, we talk through the implications of this trend, which has accelerated since China launched a massive global infrastructure building strategy known as the Belt and Road Initiative. And it was in response to the Belt and Road Initiative that the U.S. Congress passed a law this October known as the U.S. Build Act, which established a new international development finance corporation known as the IDFC. We kick off our conversation discussing both the Belt and Road Initiative and this new U.S. International Development Finance Corporation before having a broader discussion about the ways in which this rivalry will manifest itself around the world and its impact on global development. This episode is part of a content partnership between the podcast and the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. Experts from the Global Development Institute come on the show to discuss their research and also the pressing news of the day as it relates to global inequalities and development. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Development Institute, you can go to gdi.manchester.ac.uk or click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Professor Seth Schindler. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, the Belt and Road Initiative was launched or announced in in 2013 by the current Chinese Premier Xi Jinping. And... um, it's it's a, more or less a strategy rather than a single initiative. So it's a series of projects, really, that signals kind of China's uh, determination or commitment to reach out beyond its borders and establish firm linkages with countries uh, in Eurasia and Africa. And I would say that uh, it's geared toward establishing a sphere of influence, although uh, it's, it's a peaceful initiative, of course, but it, there is an underlying uh, objective of establishing influence in these places by by transforming territory and orienting it uh, toward China. So you'll see... Um, so like, what's a, a good example of, of that? 
Well, a, a lot of port building, for example, and it's not just one port that's being built, but a number of ports are being uh, purchased. Some are being built. Uh, they're greenfield developments, meaning there was uh, uh, no port there before. And so it's this logistics infrastructure that integrates uh, coastal areas, connects them typically via Chinese-built railways and roads uh, into interiors, so into resource frontiers or uh, uh, areas with um, where there's agribusiness um, taking place. And so commodities, that is resources and agri, uh, agribusiness commodities, are being then channeled toward, uh, toward China. And this territory that's being uh, produced, uh, these the spheres of influence then, uh, I would say, that are being produced are then being integrated into uh, China's kind of greater sphere of influence or, you know, Sinocentric global production networks. So these are global production networks, but they're anchored in China. And until recently, we kind of just, everyone kind of assumed that global production networks would be would would have lead firms in Europe or North America. And that's increasingly not the case. Um, we see a lot of large Chinese firms and, and Asian firms growing. Of course, Japanese firms have always uh, uh, managed production in some parts of the world. But um, what we're really seeing, I think, with BRI is a, a fundamental eastward orientation uh, of some places in the world uh, toward China as they're integrated then so, with Chinese uh, production networks. So, so one of the more ambitious projects envisioned under the Belt Road Initiative is the Lamu Port South Sudan Ethiopia Transit Corridor. Can you just sort of situate that geographically uh, for people who who um, yeah. are, are unfamiliar and then talk about what this massive project entails? Yeah, sure. So this is a, a transnational region um, that, as the name suggests, extends from kind of it includes parts of northern Kenya, um, then cuts across South Sudan and southern Ethiopia um, and and integrates then Lamu port, which is in northeast Kenya, with the resource frontier in um, in, in South Sudan, western Kenya uh, and southern Ethiopia. It's important to note that this initiative had been planned ages ago. I mean, the, the first time that this infrastructure network was was dreamed of, I think, was in the 1970s, but it, it never went anywhere. And in uh, th this area was sort of thought of as a kind of frontier, sometimes a lawless frontier. It was a place where the, the Kenyan government, for example, struggled to establish control uh, in the in the British colonial era. The, just north of Isiolo, there's a town called Archer's Post, which was the, the final uh, final frontier, so to speak, of the British colonial empire, the final outpost before you really got into, uh, uh, got beyond British colonial control. Um, so this, this initiative is kind of, it's more or less been incorporated into Belt and Road, I would say. I mean, um, it was dreamed of before, it was conceptualized, then it was, uh, part of the infrastructure was built. And what we see is that a lot of the, the construction is being done by Chinese firms. So a road now connects Addis Ababa to uh, Nairobi. And then in each of those cities, you can get on a Chinese-built train and go from, from Addis to Djibouti or from Nairobi to Mombasa. So it's really the, the kind of, it's, it's really that uh, Chinese firms and, and Chinese capital uh, are driving the integration of this area that was previously more or less uh, disconnected and, and, and uh, from global production networks and the global economy. And of course, that is just one example of many yeah. projects that are underway under the rubric of the, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, 
But interestingly, uh, it seems now that the United States kind of wants to get into the uh, infrastructure development game, something that, as you noted, China has dominated for many, many years now. Um, can you talk a little bit uh, about the International Development Finance Corporation? This is a, a brand new U.S. entity that was uh, had wide bipartisan support, surprisingly, uh, and passed uh, in past the Senate, past the House in October. I think it was amid like the Kavanaugh hearing, so it didn't get too much uh, attention. But it was passed and then signed into law by President Trump. And so now we have this new International Development Finance Corporation that was created ostensibly to compete with the the Belt and Road Initiative. So can you talk a bit about what that new entity entails and how its crafters believe it will compete with the BRI? Yeah, sure. It's it's a fascinating story, actually, because um, for years, the U.S. kind of uh, the U.S. central federal government was not involved uh, in the construction of infrastructure in developing countries. So U.S. development aid has tended in recent years to to focus more on uh, human development, uh, maybe small scale ventures, uh, business development, but not on like global health stuff, right? Like like PEPFAR yeah, yeah, and the Millennium yeah. Challenge Corporation. Those were the big kind of Indeed. U.S. development projects. Indeed, and and large scale infrastructure initiatives are are notably absent, um, and so I think alarm bells started ringing in Washington. Uh, you know, you'll you'll read all sorts of stuff like uh, Francis Fukuyama and colleagues wrote about Beijing's building boom, and they warned that Beijing was establishing a monopoly in this er area and so on. And so uh, we see that thinking kind of taking hold in Washington, and this bill did have bipartisan support. So it was the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation was part of originally the Better Utilization of Investment Leading to Development Act, which uh, so the BUILD Act. The BUILD Act, yes. Yeah, exactly. And this act uh, passed through the, the House uh, with bipartisan support. And then it was in the Foreign Relations Committee, I believe, in the Senate, where it was passed. And it was it was sitting in the Senate when it suddenly got tacked on to the um, Federal Aviation Authorization Act. So a uh, classic it maneuver. In, in, <laughs> it in really the was. And, yeah. and there are some pretty other um, funny things that were tacked onto that bill, something about sports medicine, doctors, insurance and so on. But the um, the important thing to note, I think, is that, you know, that obviously Washington has uh, bipartisan uh, uh, cooperation is in short supply in Washington. So I think a number of initiatives that did have bipartisan support were just put together uh, and passed through the Senate and then signed by the president. Um, and what the Build Act uh, did uh, is create the International Development Finance Corporation, which will have about $60 billion at its disposal to fund large-scale infrastructure projects. And the bill, it, it's quite fascinating because it's explicitly, um, it doesn't mention China, but it does say that it's meant to provide uh, low- and middle-income countries uh, aligned with the U.S. with a non-authoritarian alternative. Uh, so, yeah, so hit, hit nudge-nudge, right? Indeed, indeed. Um, but what's quite interesting is that it only allows the, the IDFC to, to fund up to about a third of any single project. So the remaining two thirds uh, of, of the capital investment will have to come from somewhere else, probably the private sector. Um, so whoever uh, crafted that assumes that this bill will actually uh, generate $180 billion mm -hmm. in investment. That's the objective anyway. And so if you're, you know, a country, uh, a middle income country, uh, you know, generally aligned with the US, but, you know, also not at all hostile to, to, you know, China, um, 
why how would you decide where to go for your financing i mean one of the the big knocks on the bri has been that it is really like a debt trap or has become a debt trap to many countries i know sri lanka for example is is a good is is a good example of how um a port project that started out very ambitious ended up with the Chinese owning the lease to this port for the next century mm-hmm. because Sri Lanka, you know, became so indebted to China that was constructing this, this port. Um, I guess one, can you ex- describe that example and also discuss like what's going through a country's mind when it decides to, uh, where to, where to go for its funding? Well, there are a couple of things to unpack there. I mean, yeah. first, this notion of, of the BRI as a debt trap. I think it's important to note that there are, uh, I mean, at the moment, I don't know how many countries are considered part of the BRI. It's rather acephalous. Many countries have joined just last week. Xi Jinping was in Argentina. Portugal has signaled its its enthusiasm. So there are far more countries involved than there are countries that have uh, fallen into some sort of debt trap. I mean, I think that um, that could happen in uh, with almost any lender, I would say. So a small number of countries, perhaps, uh, that have that have uh, borrowed money from China in the context of BRI are highly indebted. Uh, Sri Lanka is indeed one of them. And um, I think the lesson learned from Sri Lanka is that um, in many ways, per- perhaps the Chinese lenders were a bit too accommodating. Uh, to the to the government that was in power, and we might you might say the same about projects that were approved in Malaysia before the recent um, um, change in in the government there. Um, I think what we're going to see is that Chinese lenders are going to to be a lot more careful about how much money they provide for a project. So they're they're not simply going to rubber stamp loans uh, anymore, which I, I have a feeling uh, that's kind of what, what they were doing. Because keep in mind, the, the lending is indeed, it does have a political logic. It's not just a, an economic logic. So they were they were happy to accommodate allies, basically. And when, when, when allies asked for for uh, for funding, they were happy to accommodate, and then suddenly uh, they'd ask for more funding and more funding, and the pro- the the price of some of these projects ballooned, and 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 so much so that they didn't reflect any longer um, the the actual cost of building the infrastructure, and the the where that money went is a mystery. But I guess uh, we can take a pretty good guess. Uh, what we see now from the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is headquartered in Beijing, uh, is a kind of new or an emergent commitment to preventing corruption. So I think we're going to um, see projects, the, the, the loans reflect the cost of the projects mm-hmm. in the future. Um, well, I mean, I mean, more broadly, so, so you have the advent of this new International Development Finance Corporation on the one yeah. hand. Uh, on the other hand, you have China's longstanding investments that have been increased under the, the BRI rubric. How do you expect these two companies competing sort of yeah. visions, these two competing entities um, to interact with each other and to affect sort of the geopolitics of yeah. broader Chinese-US competition? Great question. So, I mean, on the one hand, you would immediately think that it's positive uh, from the perspective of developing countries that are in the market for large-scale infrastructure, uh, because you know, the more lenders, obviously, the, the, the more competition there is among lenders, um, the cheaper the capital, you would think. Um, that might not necessarily be the case for a couple of reasons. First, the United States, uh, 16 senators sent uh, a letter to the U.S. Secretary of State and Secretary of the Treasury urging them to vote against 
countries in the IMF if they apply for a loan if they're indebted to China for <laughs> infrastructure projects. Because well, you so, wouldn't want like U.S. money paid into the and, IMF to pay off Chinese loans to those countries exactly. that are indebted to. Exactly. Oh man, I mean, I, I th the logic makes a lot of sense. Like, it why would does, you? Why would U.S. taxpayers have to yeah. fund? Um, like, uh, you know, I don't know, Sri Lanka's debt to China over an IMF loan. Indeed. And, and, and that's the, that's certainly the logic, but what it does do is basically say that if you borrow from China, you're on your own, if you get in trouble, or at mm -hmm. least you can't come to the lender of last resort, um, the IMF and, and, and. So I think instead of competing with China, this we'll, we'll start to see the U.S. Uh, trying to contain China. And infrastructure development is just one field in which that's taking place. There are all sorts of other ways uh, that I'm sure the listeners are aware of that the where the U.S. and China are competing trade, for example, intellectual property rights regulations, and so on. I think this is just another one of those fields. And so the so U.S. A strategy is going to of containment. This is this is a Cold War. Uh, sort of uh, terminology that you're you're using now, but in the infrastructure space, that's that's really interesting. Indeed, and it, it's a literal strategy of containment because again, a lot of these uh, it's about the production of territory, the Belt and Road. So there's a there's a um, an underlying logistics network that's kind of establishing territory to be plugged into sinocentric production networks, and and that is then a sphere of influence. So whoever connects the world, so to speak. Um, uh, kind of controls it or can exert influence. And we see the Europeans playing the same game. They're, in September, the EU-Asia Connectivity Initiative was passed, and the Europeans were um, much more careful about how they talked about the Belt and Road Initiative, and they explicitly stated uh, in, in press conferences, uh, EU officials, that it was not meant to compete with the BRI. Um, but uh, I, I think we do see a race to connect the world among global superpowers. And primarily, uh, you know, it's the U.S. and China that we'll see playing this game. But you see other powers, particularly regional powers that do play locally. So Brazil, um, Japan uh, plays in some places. And so rather than a kind of great game, so to speak, to connect Eurasia, we're seeing a great race, you might say, to, to uh, a, a, a great game, sorry, to control Eurasia. You'll see a great race to connect it. So... On the one hand, it seems that you have all this money now flowing in from both the United States and, and, and China to these great infrastructure and connectivity projects. And so one might sort of be tempted to think that that is a boon in general for global development. But on the other hand, what you're telling me is that these projects are being driven not with global development in mind, but with the sort of geopolitical interests of both the Chinese and the Americans um, driving the agenda. So I guess my question is, what are the implications for global development uh, for these these projects for you know for for countries and and local actors and you know the the ostensible recipients of this this kind of aid and and development assistance well it really depends on the country and i think what we're going to see is that countries develop increasingly sophisticated strategies to kind of balance their relationship particularly countries that are aligned with both the us and china and and would like to remain so um they will develop strategies to kind of play both sides in a way but this is um so can you that, give me an example actually of, of, of yeah. how that might look yeah so um there are a couple of, of examples but i think uh, tanzania is a great example so it's you know a strong u.s ally in in east africa but it has a long history of cooperation with china um china built the tazara railway which linked the zambian copper belt uh, to dar es salaam 
uh, and it was one of China's first overseas development um, uh, 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 infrastructure development projects in the 60s. Interestingly, that's where the strategy of non-interference comes from because it was right after the colonial period. So China could hardly turn up in Dar es Salaam and, and, and tell the Tanzanians how to run their country. So it was very much an anti-colonial policy, the, this China's uh, strategy of, of mm. non-interference. In any case, um, we see Tanzania is does suffer from an infrastructure deficit. And in the 2010 Integrated Industrial Development Strategy, Tanzania's, Tanzania's industrial policy embraced spatial planning. So out of you know the, something like the first... So uh, development of development corridors, a regional division of labor, um, a new port project, uh, integrating kind of the western part of the country with the eastern part. So it... All of these kinds of spatial development strategies that we saw in the 1970s were resurrected, and that's not only Tanzania, that's a global phenomenon that happened after 2009. We can talk about why in a moment. The point is simply that in Tanzania's industrial policy in 2010, there were seven key points, recommendations. The first five were spatial. Now, Spatial planning is ex is expensive, particularly intercity infrastructure. These are it's not kind of perhaps in the past when you thought of infrastructure, you think of citywide systems like investment in water or electricity, and those are still needed and they still take place. But increasingly, what we're seeing with initiatives like the BRI, um, it's expensive intercity connectivity, so rail networks, road networks, uh, regional power grids, etc., and a lot of times transnational investments as well. So it's, they're quite complicated. Now, Tanzania requires this infrastructure for its development plan, or at least its planners think that it does, and they're quite expensive. So I think it certainly didn't hurt when when China showed up and, and was willing to pay for a $10 billion port in Bagamoyo. It's a small town north of Dar es Salaam. This was a project that uh, no other funders were interested in. And yet China was willing uh, to, to, to build Africa's largest port uh, uh, in Tanzania. So I think that really sent a message to the rest of the world. And it is a game changer when you have uh, a new lender that's willing to take a risk uh, and take risks that other lenders are not. Um, and, and the reason why other lenders were not was, again, because at that time, the US wasn't in the infrastructure development uh, 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 game, you could say. It was private sector lenders. And mm -hmm. these were some of these projects are just too risky for northern banks, whose shareholders will demand uh, that they don't take such risks. So surely developing intercity uh, networked infrastructure across national borders, say from Addis Ababa to, uh, to Djibouti, is a very risky endeavor and expensive that a single private bank would really n hesitate to undertake. So you really need a large state that's willing to assume some of that risk um, and, and is perhaps in it for some political reward as well. Can you talk about, I guess, the, the sort of the logic of infrastructure-led development as opposed to the Washington consensus, which is this idea that you could privatize and and sort of develop more neoliberal economies? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think first it's important to remember that in the 1970s, there was a consensus among planners in the USSR and the USA uh, with regard to the, the effectiveness of large-scale infrastructure-led development uh, in developing countries. So, you know, the USSR and the US, they were in competition for client states. But once their planners got to these places, they more or less did the same thing. There were only minor differences between uh, the planning regimes of US engineers and planners and the Soviets. All of that comes to an end in the in the 1980s uh, for a number of reasons, but but most importantly, 
interest rates in the U.S. go up to about 20%, and there's a debt crisis in, in much of the so-called third world. Um, so for countries that had loans, that had taken loans and borrowed to build infrastructure, they simply couldn't continue paying those. Other countries that had planned large-scale infrastructure projects were unable to, to, to see them through. And we had from the, the early 1980s, um, for almost, for about two decades, the Washington consensus and the institutions that, that supported the Washington consensus discouraged states from borrowing to construct infrastructure. If we think of the, the 10 points of the Washington consensus, uh, they're all, it's completely aspatial. So the imperative is to get the prices right. But what we saw was that the private sector did not actually develop those large-scale large connective infrastructure uh, projects that we see now, and particularly transnational ones. So then we went into this period of uh, good governance, and we uh, the imperative was then to get the institutions right. And that also didn't really do anything with regard to infrastructure development. So what we see now, and this is particularly because of the 2008 crisis, uh, is this imperative to get the the, the territory right. Um, so Paul Krugman's work on the new economic geography, what he was awarded the, the Nobel Prize in 2008, and this kind of signaled to economists that it was okay to start thinking spatially again and to reincorporate space into neoclassical e economics. And um, at the World Bank, after Joe St Stiglitz left, um, we saw Justin Lin take over as the chief economist. He was the first non-Western chief economist, and he's from uh, China, by the way. Um, so he has, of course, a very different understanding of relationship, the relationship between the economy and the state. And he kind of put some of those ideas into high-level policy. And we saw the 2009 uh, World Development Report released by the World Bank, which um, stated that it's okay for states to do spatial planning in some circumstances. In other words, states can build infrastructure, they can determine uh, kind of where things take place, the economic geography uh, within their country under cer certain circumstances. And so that really just opened the door for the return of all of these types of uh, state-led planning and infrastructure development uh, schemes. And we've seen then the resurrection of um, a, a host of regional planning strategies, such as development corridors, new town planning, um, dams are back on the agenda. Um, and, and China was really at the forefront of that. But it's important to note that the Belt and Road Initiative is, is consistent with that logic. But it, it's only the most ambitious of those plans. We see many, many others. Uh, Lapset, as you mentioned, um, is not technically part of BRI, uh, but you also have the Greater Mekong subregion, the uh, COSI plan in Latin America. And so the Belt and Road Initiative is only the most ambitious uh, of, of that type of thinking and that type of plan. So, so maybe like taking a, a step back, um, mm -hmm. if you are interested say your your, your goal your um you know priority is the sort of alleviation of poverty is economic mm -hmm. development in countries with low gdps um you know just basically the uplifting of of people from poor situations mm -hmm. are you on balance supportive of this kind of growing competition between the us and china or do you think it will detract from those broader global development um, goals? That's a very difficult question. And I think with it, it, it's you can't simply give one answer. So what we're going to see is that some countries with responsive governments, um, with, with governments that have <clears throat> that are responsible either to an electorate or or a, a, a true democratic uh, or sorry, developmental mission, 
they will make use of the the BRI funding that's available or uh, from the IDFC um, and they will plan projects accordingly. I think we'll see that in both instances. There's just so much money available that you will find some bureaucrats or some governments tempted and you'll see they're just using it for, uh, you'll, you'll find instances of corruption in some cases, but you will also find places that there re- are real infrastructure deficits that governments will be able to address. These are longstanding deficits the, from the 1980s until the mid 2000s. Um, governments were were um, discouraged by the Washington consensus from investing in infrastructure. Uh, and so we have real infrastructure deficits in places. And it's not a bad thing if you say, uh, connect places that have historically been disconnected from the global economy uh, with roads, with uh, with rail, with, with energy infrastructure, and so on. Um, so I think it's just, you just can't simply say that this will be necessarily a good thing or necessarily a bad thing, but you will see certain governments um, coupling, you could say, a kind of strategic coupling with the Belt and Road Initiative um, or with the IDFC in in very different ways and some of them will um, be able to leverage it for positive development impacts uh well seth thank you so much for your time this was interesting and, and helpful and just uh, i think a fascinating take on a kind of this new pseudo cold war dynamic taking place in uh, around the world thank you very much All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Schindler, Seth, and all the good folks at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester for entering into this fantastic content partnership with the podcast. I've been very pleased with the kind of content that we've been able to uh, create through this partnership. And And I must say, this conversation actually adds a very textured layer to ongoing rivalries between the United States and China over trade and national security and, and, and other issues. This, is, uh, I think, should lead uh, a sense of depth to your own understanding of uh, an emergent uh, rivalry and perhaps an emergent cold war between the U.S. and, and China. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.